Uh, while watching this, there's a quote from a book that came to mind, which was, um, there are years that ask questions and there are years that answer them. Um, did you ever think that you'd ever see this footage again? Uh, that's a part of me that, that thinks I, well, even while it was missing, those years, yeah, I, I did think I might do, I'm not sure in what form, because I knew that George was a guy who was always kind of leaving clues and puzzles, and at some point, um, this puzzle was gonna be fixed, uh, found, um, but when, you know, that was a question. But I didn't let myself fully believe in that or act upon it because it's just too heartbreaking. And so I had just had to, you know, believe that it was never gonna happen and, and just move on and um, you know, do other things and grow up and shut up about this and pretend it never happened and uh, become a boring grown up in a different way. Yeah. Um, you said that you um, kind of did things in reverse a little bit. You were oh. a filmmaker, then a film critic, then you went to film school. Yeah. Um, and then I suppose you had to go all the way back again to filmmaker. Um, when the boxes did finally arrive, you didn't, did you didn't, I believe you didn't delve into them straight away and you didn't no, revisit them. But you know, like I was always a filmmaker. I just, um, you know, a filmmaker in here and a filmmaker in here, uh, just not a filmmaker in real life, according to the world, as far as they could see. Um, so I, it was, it was hard because writing about film was the closest way, closest I could get to film without, you know, making films. Um, and then I had to find my way back to filmmaking. And when the boxes came, they were, um, you know, I, I, they came in like 2011, 2012, and I was actually coming out with a book. And I was, you know, trying to be a grown-up writer and just not think about this thing. And this, this, this horrible gift or curse started appearing in my house in boxes. Um, and they, there was like seven boxes of them. They would keep appearing in my house, um, which would send them, and it took several months. And I would not want them to occupy too much space because I was trying to promote my new book. And so I stacked them in the corner of my living room. And um, to take up as little space as possible, I stacked them vertically. And soon, seven boxes would begin resembling a vertical coffin, a kind of a sarcophagus, a mummy's tomb, I guess, in my living room. I'm just standing there. And for this, this, this mummy was in my, my, my living room for like, I guess, three years. And my husband was like, when are you going to finally get rid of this stupid thing? So I finally had to open this. Um, so you've left them for three years without opening I, Yeah, because I just couldn't, you know, I was like, I admit it was very narcissistic. I just did not, I could not deal with looking at myself as a teenager, giving that zombie-ish teenage performance, and I just didn't want to, you know, deal with it. And, and then I opened them up finally and saw that it was not just the reels. I mean, the reels were interesting because George was such a psychopath. Um, he wrapped up every little reel, 16, and you guys know what 16 looks like and you're old enough to know, uh, experience BAFTA people to know what uh, 16 things look like and they were uh, wrapped up in black garbage bags, each and every one of them, so they were pristine. He actually preserved them, so they were pristine. And um, when I opened them up, it was, wasn't just reels. It was 70, it was 70 cans of 16, 70 cans of 16 totally in 700 minutes. And it was storyboards, um, everything. I mean, I think I described them there. Mm. Um, but it was, when I took them to the lab to, to digitize them so I could see them finally, I found a lab that, you know, was nerdy enough that I had to find a place that knew what to do with 16, which is not hard to find now. Mm. 
and a place that knew about color. So I found a place that did the, does a lot of the Criterion um, transfers, Criterion Blu-rays, mm. uh, and I found the, the colorist who did the Douglas Sirk movies on Criterion. I thought, this is the guy I want, and he would know something about color. So I worked with him on the dailies, and then we, um, we digitized it, and we looked at it. And when we looked at the footage together, that was me looking at it for the first time, and him looking, you know, he heard the crazy story and just thought, nah, this is gonna be like a child's film or something, and you know, not knowing that it's gonna be like, this thing, and um, his jaw just dropped and thought, there's no way this was shot 25 years ago, mm -hmm. or he thought I was like punking them, that this is all a hoax or something. And, um, but then that's when I thought, okay, there's a story here, because um, this is a, a stranger who's seen a lot of amazing footage, and he thought this was something, and that's something that was kind of, you know, like kind of reminiscent of what was going on in American Indies in the 90s. So we weren't completely far off. We were yeah. off in our little universe, inventing our own crazy world, but we were kind of living in a parallel universe. And I thought there's something very interesting there. I like, should do something about it. And it wasn't just about me because I was giving horrible performance. Uh, I can maybe make a film where I can cut myself out of it. But everybody else was like, the woman who played the nurse, I thought she was amazing. She could have been an actress. She wanted to be an actress and she never had a future because this was taken from her and then that amazing dog and all this amazing production designed by 18 year olds with nothing. So I thought, um, you know, this is not about me. It's about everybody else as well. And I should do something about it. Was there ever a temptation to transform into a narrative form rather than a documentary? Um, you mean like put what, this together yeah, again? Even with a lot of sound, that, yeah. Um, you know, because the sound was missing, mm. when, you, when you think about putting it together, you, you might have to consider doing something really drastically tacky, which is dubbing. Um, and that, I thought, wasn't going to be mm. so good. And the other problem was I needed a lot of help probably putting it together as, an, as a film. I mean, I, first of all, I didn't think this, the script was going to be worth doing putting it together again. Mm -hmm. A lot of people ask me um, at screenings when I'm at festivals and stuff with you know, young, uh, young people who are film nerds who are in film school and yet not, um, not yet disillusioned by the film business, let's say, <laughs> uh, and volunteer the services to me to um, like come put this Humpty Dumpty together again for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I just haven't got the, the time right now to organize that army to kind of do that. But um, I did talk to a friend who runs the San Francisco Film F Silent Film Festival, and she suggested, why don't you do it as a silent movie? And I thought, why? that's a brilliant idea. So that might be something for the future. I might do that. Mm -hmm. Might be fun. Might, oh. be Trump, uh, might be horrible, <laughs> because like, also, all the logs, OK, because you guys know like logs. Like When you shoot in 16, it's like handwritten. And then in, the, in 1992, everything was handwritten. And everything was handwritten by Jasmine, whose handwriting, as you know, is like, really hard to decipher. So, it will take a um, detective to kind of put that together again. Um, talking about Jasmine and yes. Anna, getting um, them back on board for the documentary, what was that conversation like? Was it something that they wanted to revisit or did you have to kind of... Conversation. Um, <laughs> that was... Um, Sophie's like the nicest person in the world. She's really... Um, she makes sense. Um, she understands what, what this is about. And um, she understands... I mean, she's, it's... Uh, you know, with getting her on board was no problem, and you know it was painful, and she was, you know, a little concerned and and all. Um, but she was fine, mm -hmm. you know. I went to find her, and she was fine. And Jasmine was a challenge, mm -hmm. but that's the great thing about Jasmine. I mean, she's she's like, you know, when I told her about this, um, she was like, insisted that we had to run lines. 
because uh, she wanted to know what I was going to ask her. And I was like, that's no way. I mean, there's no way she's going to be Jasmine. She's going to be a, a different version of Jasmine, a fake version, which is, wouldn't be as fun or wouldn't be as real. I mean, this is a documentary. It's not, you know, and I, you have to catch Jasmine's Jasmine. So the thing you do with Jasmine is you do not answer her emails <laughs> for a while, and, but you do show up at the appointed time, and, you, and, then, she's, and then have her yell at you and say, uh, I'm just going to give you two hours. I'm flying off to London. You know, that's it. And so um, you do your best in two hours and have her yell at you for two hours because as soon as you talk to Jasmine about shirkers, it's such a sore thing. Mm. We revert to like our 16-year-old selves and it's just, she's, she just is. And you just capture it and, the, and credit has to be given to Iris Ng, our DP, who also shot um, stories we tell for Sarah Polly. And um, she was very, she's such a tiny person, mm. which is great. And she's, um, she makes herself into a tinier person when she's shooting, and she's poker-faced and silent and just sits there, and Jasmine just spent her time just insulting me the whole time and yelling at me. And it was exactly Jasmine as herself, you know, being unselfconscious, um, and we just caught her, and this was actually the nice Jasmine, the nice bits, because uh, a lot of what she was saying did not make sense because she was accusing me of things that weren't true um, and things that were misremembered and... It would have been a much more interesting, fun film, but would have would have been a very different film. Does she, in a way, do you think she blamed you for the loss of her tears? Yeah. yeah, yeah, because she wanted to wait another year and shoot the next summer, which, of course, when you're 18, 19, it's never going to happen. I mean, like, nothing's going to be, as you know, like, nothing's going to ever be perfect when you want to make a film like that mm -hmm. or any film. Uh, you just have to go for it when you, when you have, you know, enough pieces in place and you just go. Uh, if you're going to wait for everything to be perfect, like she thought there was going to be an ideal thing next year, blah, blah, blah. I mean, like, we're at 18 or 19, you're going to make plans for the next summer and do something else, and mm -hmm. George is not going to do this. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, it was, it was, I still, we still had this, this argument to this very day. Whenever we talk about Shirkers, it was like, no, it would not have happened if we had waited. And she was like, no, we should have waited. And it's just never going to end. And has this in some way helped mend that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so um, we, Sophie, me, and Jasmine had nev not been in the same room together, the three of us, uh, in 20 years. And, you know, at our premiere at Sundance was the first time the three of us were together <laughs> again. And um, Jasmine, I think, was thrilled and happy because mm -hmm. people loved her. I mean, they just, she's a force and people love her and they, you know, go, 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 go mob her and, you know, shout out lines, her lines at her across the street and kids were running after her and she loved that. Um, but in front of me, because I invited her and this is my film, I guess, um, she's like, she's having a terrible time and you're, you're being such a dick to me, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, but like to the rest of my crew that was there with her and with us, um, they just, she was having a fabulous time going to movies and hanging out and in the rooms where RuPaul was. So she was in the proximity of RuPaul and that thrilled her <laughs> immensely. So um, I, knew, I knew she had a great time and she loves all of this and she, you know, so she's, I think she's, she's in her way dealing and is proud and is happy, but she just won't want to, you know, let me have the credit. And I understand, yeah. I mean, I understand that. And I probably would be the same if it was her making the film, so. Um. When making the doc, there's obviously a lot of George in it. Yes. Were you ever kind of hesitant to do that because how he kind of just, you know... Yeah, because he would, he would, like, hijack the story all dream. over again yeah. um, a second time, and, you know, shame on me. Um, but, um, 
yeah, that was that was that was that was there was that. But there was no way I could, I could tell my story and the story of this film without telling George's story because I think the the thing that's that's fascinating about George is I don't I don't really think of him as a villain. Mm. Um, you know, I think of him as a very fascinating <clears throat> um, creator. I mean, he's like still the the best storyteller I ever met, and. You know, he's a man who's never actually finished anything in his life. And the way I feel like he creates is by destroying and by taking away. And so he, what he creates is a series of black holes by which he would be remembered and, and talked about, you know, and made mythic. And part of me was really resistant about making him a, a mythic character in this film. But he is such a, a creature of movies. I mean, he was a, such a vampire of cinema that he was a, you know, he was a composite character, his persona was a composite of all his favorite characters from his favorite films. You know, like, I did not mention here um, these other films that there's just too many to mention, like Claire's Knee, for example, that very, very creepy um, Eric Romer film where the, the hero, uh, played by Jean-Claude Briali, um, basically his, 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 his aim was to touch the knee of a 16-year-old girl and mess up her friendships with, you know, and um, interfere with her life. Um, nothing more sinister than that, except for touching his knee, her, her knee. Um, and George, that was one of his heroes. I mean, that was his, <laughs> you know, like, to, when you think about that, it, it's awfully strange. Um, I had not seen Claire's knee at the time. Mm -hmm. I saw it, revisited it many years later, and saw it again recently, and I thought, oh my god, that's fucking creepy. Um, so, like, and then there's also, like, The Green Room by Francois Truffaut, which is a a lesser loved Francois Truffaut, later Francois Truffaut, where he plays a guy, Francois Truffaut himself, um, not a very good actor, which is why it was charming, uh, playing this man who, whose wife had died, and he kept a room in his house called the Green Room, where he you know, kept all her things and as if she was still alive, and George did exactly that with our reels of film, you know, in the houses that he kept. Like, it was like, I felt like this, these, these, he kept them like a captive, like a, a human person that he was keeping captive in his house. So I mean, his, his whole, he lived his whole life like um, as if it was a you know, composite of many, mm. many, many different film characters. So it was only fair that I made him into a mythological uh, Georges Cardona um, in, this, in this film, I guess. You, you mentioned there's a sense of solidarity as well with the other filmmaker, Stephen. Mm -hmm who did the same, so I suppose you feel maybe perhaps less of a victim and just yeah. it's intrinsically part of his personality to do this and not, he didn't single you out in a way. Yeah, and that we weren't just, um, I was so pleased uh, that we weren't just these naive um, girls in Singapore who were just like, you know, so taken by this this, this strange man. Um, no, because like, the, you know, and Grace, the author, mm -hmm. I mean, who was in her 40s, I guess, when she met him. I mean, she's intelligent, super intelligent, um, Harvard, Harvard educated um, author and you know smart lady and and, and you know, she was really charmed by George because he's he's I mean I, I, and that's why I had her in as well um, you know just to show that we weren't just the only ones um, but that he had such an amazing way of of talking mm. to you and making your life you know more mythic if you got involved with his mythic plans. Um, I think we can go to the audience for some questions. I think there's two roving mics. If you've got one, if you can wait for it. There's just a gentleman here. Hello. Um, thank you for Hi. your wonderful film. Thank you. Very original, too. Um, I'm just interested to know, have you any idea why he meticulously kept everything else except the soundtrack? Do you, do you know why he did I, that? I, you know, I think that... Um, this part of him that, because you know, even even retrieving the films was a whole story in itself because they were kept in separate separate parcels and it was like a puzzle I had to solve. 
And um, I think he wanted us to solve the puzzle, but not all of it. And even if something happened to him and we would put this thing together again, it would not be complete. Because then, you know, then we would have won. And he doesn't want us to win. He still wants to leave us with a hole. Um, because he left Steve's film, like, you know, bits of Steve's horror film that he made, like, stolen as well. So that could never be fully put together. So he, he has this whole tradition of leaving holes. Um, and so I think he, I don't know, I mean, he knew that even if we had put the puzzle together and put this film together, it would never be complete. And there was going to be something missing. And I'm sure it gave him immense pleasure thinking about this when he was doing it. Um, very, very perverse, which is, and I cannot help but find that fascinating uh, and not villainize him as people think I should be angrier. But I just find that really kind of his, his motives really fascinating. The fact that even, yeah, he's like literally took our voices, which is cruel um, and, you know, such an apt and almost corny metaphor, but true. Uh, you mentioned the film when you were a teenager making it, that you knew that he had a life and a wife and so forth. Yeah. You didn't really know anything about that. So when his wife did get in contact, how did she know? How did she know? I, um, I actually you? knew her. I mean, she was in the background um, in Singapore. She was there with a, you know, and, um, but, you know, as a kid, you're selfishly grabbing hold of your mentor who's more like one of you than a grown-up. And, you know, you're just not thinking about that you might be stealing him away from his family life because he was choosing to spend time with you guys, the kids. Mm. Um, and, you know, I feel badly about that um, because she was working really hard. She was an architect. She was the one who was actually, you know, keeping his life afloat. Mm. Um, but, um, but, you know, at the time, you're just, you know, selfish for, for fun and adventure and, you know, you're not thinking about that. And it's only, I mean, she's a good friend. I mean, we, we're really in close contact now and she's, you know, she knows everything that's going to happen. Like, like, she knows that this film is going to be released on she seen Netflix. It? No, she hasn't seen it. She's going to have a house, she's going to have a party <laughs> at her house October 26th in New Orleans and hopefully she won't freak out. Um, but, um, but she's very excited. I mean, she's, she's seen the trailer. She didn't think she could see it. Um, but it's, I think it's been very healing for her. I mean, she was like, she, at first she wanted, she wanted to be involved and she didn't want to be involved and she wanted to be involved and she didn't want to be involved. And then she didn't want to be called the widow. Um, but I said, yeah, but if I said ex-wife slash widow, it's just not as catchy. The <laughs> widow is actually more of a, you're a character, mm. do you understand? And, um, you know, um, I guess she understands now. But um, so it's, it's, you know, she's, she's really excited about the whole thing. And it's kind of a, a nice bit of closure for her. I think, I think, um, I don't know, I think she's actually, I hate the, the word victim, but mm. I think she was the one who's most affected by his actions, you know, because she was with him for 25 years. And even not knowing his birthday or... Yeah, and then she was like, the last, the last con he did on her, I mean, I hate the word con too, but she, um, she paid for his funeral. Um, so she, he's, when he died, um, he still managed to get like $20,000 out of her, you know, to pay for a nice funeral, a nice Catholic cemetery, and a nice unmarked grave, but in a very nice spot next to a fountain hmm. in Houston. Um, there's a question just at the front here. 
Um, yes, I loved it. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I was very struck by a phrase you used about halfway through, saying that it was as if Shirkus was giving out distress signals yeah. and things were reminding you of it. And I wonder, is that, is that the point where you were thinking, well, maybe I could let this go and move on, but it was just grabbing at you, could you it say? It was grabbing at me because like when I, when I watched um, things like Rushmore and the yeah. colours just struck me and the you know the youthful hero with his friendships with grown-ups and there were so many parallels in there and then Ghost World as well, you know, down to the uncanny outfits and all that. And um, I just felt like I was watching those films and just getting so excited, but there was nobody to tell because there was no proof and there was no, there was, you know, there was no one who would actually believe me and I would sound like grandiose mm. exaggerator um, more than I already, more than people thought it was already, I think. And so I, um, I just had to keep it to myself and be quiet and just hope that, you know, um, but this, this is why um, when I was doing the sound design with my wonderful sound designer, Lawrence Everson, Everson um, I said I wanted to have the, the reels have a very distinct sound, like radioactive. They were like calling out to me. So we, we assigned those reels, you know, kind of a metallic sound, like, um, you know, sonar that we give out. And, and um, George had his distinct sound as well. And the memory of George would have his own distinct sound. So that when you watch this, because um, we don't have that much footage of George, mm -hmm. um, that he would live beyond the frame and in sound design. So he would, you know, just be haunting the rest of the film as well. Sound design is such a huge part of it because when you don't have the footage, you have to be much more creative, I think. And in terms of kind of, I know we're skipping all the way back again, yeah. but you say so you have the footage and then you realize that the thing to do is to create a film about the making of this film yeah. um, and the mystery. But how did that all come? How did the financing come apart about that? Did you have, how, who did you have to persuade? Did you have to cut a teaser with the footage that you found? How did kind of the making of this come about? The making of it? Yeah. Oh, in terms of um, funding mm. and all that kind of stuff. Oof. Um, <laughs> funding. Uh, you know, like nobody would believe you had anything um, until you actually digitized this and had the footage to show. And so I, you know, cut a little trailer by myself, um, you know, five minutes, and I threw some music on. I found this live looper, whose voice you hear throughout the film, this female voice. She's a wonderful life looper from Singapore. I found on the internet. She, life looper, she, she kind of builds a song, and she goes along, uh, you know, like with a few notes, and then she builds a song. And she, so I persuaded her to give me two songs that I thought were perfect for this film. And I, um, and one of them I just, you know, put on top of the image of this, of, of this trailer that I cut together. And then I, um, I went to Sundance and got a development fund. And then I talked to Iris Ng, the cinematographer. Um, I met her in London, actually, around the corner, and we had dinner. And, and she said, what are you working on? And I mentioned this. I didn't think I could hire her because I didn't know what I was doing at that mm -hmm. point. And she said, let's just go. Let's go to Singapore and just get some, some interviews. So we went. And then so we assembled more and more bits. And I realized that you know, there was something here, but I didn't want to be in it. I wanted to, to, to tell the story without being in it because I just hate you know, having to hear myself or see myself. Could it be about everyone else? And then I, I then, um, after you know, Sundance got involved with some development funding, they, they introduced me to some editors because they thought they, I needed some help. So I, I met with um, Inat Sidi, who's a great um, American editor. She, um, an uh, Israeli-American edit editor. She, she, she worked on The Wolf Pack and One of Us, mm -hmm. and she also did Jesus Camp, um, and she's, you know, she's Israeli. So she, she came to my house, um, and I couldn't afford 
to work with her. So she was just a kind of consultant and friend. So she came to my house and she saw, and I was gonna try to make this film not about myself, everything about everybody else but me. And she came to my house and she saw that I was such a pack rat. She saw that I had all my diaries and these photos and videos from ages ago and she, she said, Sunday, don't you realize this movie is about you? And then like she forced me to, she said, you have to make a video diary, which I never did. And then she would call me every day and just make sure that, are you writing, are you writing a diary? Are you, you know? So she forced me to kind of marinate in my teenage mania to re-engage re with my old self, my own teenage self. And I began reading my letters and, and remembered what it was, like what I was like. As a, as a mad teenager was wanting to make films and so, so obsessed. Mm. Uh, and I became that person again, because I'm a very, I guess a method filmmaker, not a method actor, but um, I kind of threw myself into it. And as soon as I, I got into that mind space, that headspace of, of what my teenage self was like, I knew I could kind of tell the story and tell it that way. And you'd kept your own kind of paper trail of your own life, hadn't you, in a way, since being a teenager or since Yeah, because I'm such a parent. Because, you know, when you have a, a huge part of your life taken away from mm. you like this, you, you tend to keep everything else. Um, and also when you're rootless and you move continents, um, you try to keep traces of things. Um, and you try to remember, I don't know. I mean, I, I just was such a relentless um, letter writer. I would mm. write like two or three letters a day because, you know, pre-internet, I would you know, mail them to my friends. I didn't care who received them, I just had to have somebody on the other end, theoretically, uh, to receive these things, because, you know, it just made it more worthwhile mm -hmm. doing. So, um, you know, Jasmine accused me of being a pat rat. And then, like, as I was, like, began making this film, she came to lunch one day and just dropped these two huge bags of letters that I'd written to her when we were teenagers, and she kept everything. So in her kind of negative, dismissive form, she was kind of, uh, you know, also like keeping stuff from those years. Because I guess those years were very intense, mm. I guess, for us. I think we've got time for maybe one or two more questions, if anyone has any. In terms of those kind of looking at those teenagers and those teenagers, right, looking when you re-examine the footage and look back at yourself as a teenager, yeah. I know you said at the beginning that you were quite scared to do that. Was it as terrifying as, or was it cathartic to go back? Um, I was relieved. I mean, I was like, I was, I was relieved, and I was I relieved that it was interesting. I was relieved that I was more interesting than I am now, and I was relieved that I can maybe try to recapture that. Um, although I would have been like, I would have so thought my present self was a loser for coming back to it so late and not having done more things with my life, because uh, I was a harsh judge, of course, when you're a teenager. Um, but I was like, oh my God, I was actually so energized and so passionate in this place where nothing was going on, and I had to make my own fun. Um, and I just, you know, I just wanted to capture that energy again mm -hmm. in the film and, and, you know, show it to kids who might be living in places that are, they are not so lucky as to have art house cinemas or, you know, be, um, have access to interesting things and interesting people that you can actually go out and do your own thing and make, make your own fun. So I was very determined to kind of capture that, that, that teenage self where it was all self-generating and, you know, that spirit. Mm -hmm. Finally, with hindsight being the wonderful thing that it is, do you think this was always the film that you're supposed to make, or would you have if this you, film? Yeah, this film, or if you 
could go back and kind of to that 16-year-old self and just say, look after this footage and keep it with you, what would you do? Um, if, if the thing wasn't stolen? Mm. If it wasn't stolen, I think if we had put it together and we would have been, I think, laughed out of town in Singapore <laughs> because people are not very sympathetic, not very sympathetic to 18-year-old girls trying to make a film uh, or a film of that sort anyway. And they're, they would have been heartless. Our enemies, our peers would have been just like, I told you so. My, my family would have been, oh, you know, embarrassed and horrified and just, you know, distanced themselves from me. And, and I think my, my, you know, the press would have been merciless because they're not <laughs> fair um, to, to kids trying to do interesting things. Um, not very arts friendly place, I have to say. And um, I think I would be a doctor right now. <laughs> um, so in a way, I'm actually glad that this, well, I'm not glad. I'm Everything grateful that things happened in the way yeah. it did. And it's a better story now. I think this film is a better film than the original Showcase would have been. It's a better story. I think it, the footage lives its best life in this form, you know, even though people have voices, I, you know, we fold them in, I mean, sounds, and I think that um, I'm showing everybody off and on the, you know, the best of everybody, and I'm hoping I did justice to all their work and, you know, hope that they would be, I mean, a lot of them are, well, they have passed away, mm. sadly, like some of them in the last year, and I wish I had just been a bit faster. I just wish I had been a little quicker, but there was no way I could have done that, so. Well, thank you very much, Sandy Tan. Thank you for bringing Shankers to us. Thanks for staying. Thank you. Thank you. So this is fun.